Welcome to the Geekcentric Podcast, and welcome to our Watch Club for The Mandalorian Season 3. Tongs Days, am I right? Welcome to Watch Club. My name is Nate, and this is our Watch Club for The Mandalorian Season 3, Episode 3, Chapter 19, titled The Convert, directed by Lee Isaac Chung. If you're joining us for the first time, this is Watch Club, our weekly review series, kind of like a book club, but way better. Keep in mind, we will be going into full spoilers for this series and Star Wars in general, so if you haven't watched this week's episode yet, be sure to do so, and then come right back in less than 12 parsecs. Now, before we get our brains melted by a mind flare, let me introduce you to my fellow Mandalorians joining me for this episode. Uh, first up, he's a high magistrate, but a different kind of high. He's the daring and delightful, dynamically insightful, droid-loving Darcy the Dank Saber Hudson. Hello, hello. How you doing, man? I guess doing you can't good. use a hoy hoy. On no, this I was, watch club, I, I was I was very very tempted to, especially because I missed out <laughs> on the last watch club. I feel like I need to fit it in somewhere, but I avoided yeah. it. Hello, hello is what you get here. <laughs> there we go, there we go. A little bit more. Uh, that's more political uh, way of saying ahoy ahoy. I think, or just more somber because this episode go. goes to some some interesting places. <laughs> it's a bit darker than we're used to with this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but listen, lastly, but certainly not. Leastly joining us once again, he's the juxtapositional, Django loving, Jar Jar justifying, Jawa junkin, Justin the Lumpararoo Lawrence. Oh, Lumpararoo, that's different. That is different. <laughs> I am so ready to talk all things Andalorian. Let me tell you, <laughs> Andalorian. <laughs> that's it, man. I downgraded you from Lobaka to Lumpararoo because you because of your absence last week. You got downgraded oh, well. to Lumpo Good old Lumpies. <laughs> Have you seen Lumpy. his gifts online, dude? Look up Lumpo <laughs> gifts, Waru gifts, Lumpy gifts. It is absolutely phenomenal. That's who I thought Lumpa- L- Lobaka originally was uh, when I first called you Lobaka. But listen, we're here week three. We got something a little bit different here. Uh, I mean, based on the trailers, we knew we were going to get to see Pershing at some point. But were you folks expecting to see a full like 40 minutes of him in this episode, you know, of, of you know, Justin, you called it the Andalorian. I'm calling it the Andorlorian. Uh, did you guys expect to uh, to get this much Pershing? Uh, no, I thought they would be, you know, breaking it up a bit more. Maybe that's because I'm used to Andor spacing out those stories over three episodes, where this right. one, it felt like they took one of those whole storylines and condensed it into a single episode. So that was definitely out of left field in my book, and especially the way they bookend it between... The, the Mandalorian scenes that it's like a little sandwich. kind of stole those the episode. Yeah. 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 Well, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I, I actually really liked how they did that. I think that works with the overall story in that it, it, you know, it keeps the theme of converting or, or conversion happening. You know, we, we have the story about, uh, Bo-Katan who, who's converting to the children of the watch. And then you also have this, uh, conversion that's happening with Pershing who's, who's adopting the new Republic way uh, and and is kind of you know is part of this program that's that's transitioning him into this this new uh, mentality. So I think it was actually really smart for them to to frame it that way. And you can see a lot of parallels between the two stories uh, as they sort of unfold. 
I mean, I think it's interesting. You're talking about how it's a good parallel between Bo-Katan's story and then uh, Pershing's. I didn't get that at all, really, because I guess maybe Bad Batch still very fresh in my mind, and we were seeing how the clones were treated mm-hmm. by the Empire, and it was almost as very we're seeing the similar thing by the New Republic treating these old soldiers who fought a war, and just it's it's interesting to see those parallels. I think and that's where this episode stood out for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, getting um, obviously as we mentioned Andor vibes, but. I think in our spoiler-free review, I mentioned how Mando feels like comfort food, and Andor was kind of like that new spicy dish you've never tried before. And it's cool to see here that we're getting like a fusion dish mm-hmm. almost, and it's it was delicious. Um, we're getting a bit of a bit of Mando fun with the intriguing spycraft narratives between you know with the New Republic and the defunct Empire. Um, and yeah, I think it's sandwiched together like a Mando Oreo. Uh, with some political thriller cream in the middle. And I just, I don't know, man. I thought it was so damn interesting throughout. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there's a lot of folks who, you know, I've I've seen so, a little bit of, obviously every episode is going to come with Twitter Discord, but people saying, oh, it was, it, I wish there was more Mando. I wish there, you know, I wish they had not included the Mando at the top and the bottom. Honestly, I actually really appreciated that they did because I think it really... I think it helped to sort of ease you into it. Whereas like all the complaints that you see online about the ideas of, of the book of Boba Fett and, uh, and people being upset that they just completely did a completely different character uh, arc and, and, and didn't even really show too much of what was going on there. Uh, I think this one, honestly, I think this is the right way to do it. If they are going to do this sort of cut to left field uh, narrative for a, a different character. I mean, I did find Pershing's story incredibly interesting. I think my issue is that it was kind of more along the lines of the online discord is that I found myself caring less about his his uh, his journey in that episode, at least during the first watch, because I'm like, but what happens to the Mando and Bo-Katan? Because they, they cut off on such a cliffhanger mm-hmm. after such a big opening, it was a very grind to a halt and became felt like a glacial pace in terms of how long it went. And that's why I kind of feel like it, to me, it could have been a two-parter where we get the next half of his story like in another episode because it it really ground to a halt at points. And while I did find it interesting, it took a second watch for me, for me to really sink my teeth into his story because I was waiting for more Mando. Mm. Yeah, I, I can see that. I think, I think again, from a pacing standpoint, um, I, I, as I said, I think it helps it. I don't think it, fi- it necessarily fixes uh you know the the how to, how to actually do that i don't know if it's the 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 best example uh, i think it's a better example um but i i you know before we get arrested trying to uh truly help the new republic uh let's get to this week's episode we open this week right where we left off last week with Bo-Katan having just saved Din Djarin from drowning in the living waters uh and uh she's sitting quietly and she's questioning whether or not to tell din and then as Din gets back up, uh, he, you know, he says he's bathed in the living water, so he's redeemed now. And Bo says she witnessed it. She asks him if he saw anything uh, alive. And when he asks, like, what, she says, let's get out of here. The two exit the planet uh, on the gauntlet. And as the two travel back to Calavala, Bo mentions that she'd invite Din in for a feast, but she's guessing that that helmet won't come off, to which he responds with, this is the way. And right after she says it, Grogu grumbles something. Uh, so before we get to this next part of the opener, you know, first off, why do you think Bo is keeping what she saw to herself? And then did Grogu actually just say, 
there's just no way <laughs> in his own little way. Yeah. Oh, he was totally trying to. Yeah. I, like, it's, so it's funny that we just talked about his first words and we got him trying to speak very clearly this time. Yeah. We knew what he was going for. So that was really cool. Again, my biggest thing was the fact that Bo-Katan didn't take her helmet off. Like yeah. both either waiting for Din to wake up and then in the ship. I You knew something's going through her mind there. If she's she's, she's woke. She, she's, yeah. The old ways aren't so old anymore, it seems to her. And I love that part. Like it's, it was yeah. really cool to see right, right from minute one that she mm. is a changed person. So I can't wait to see how that plays out. Given how um, sort of against, she wasn't buying the, the myths of the old days and stuff like that. Like she just, she didn't really care for it, right? She just, she mm-hmm. just thought it was legends. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, uh, I think Meg said it best, you know, she is shook by uh, what she saw. And I think she's using it as, as a bit of a, a political gain. Um, yeah. I think she leverage. knows, yeah, it's leverage. She knows that he has one piece of what would unify Mandalore, and that is the Darksaber. Her knowledge now of the Mythosaur would be another side of that, another side that people would see. So if she can't get the Darksaber, well, she could tame and ride the Mythosaur, and that would have enough people uh, that would you know get behind her as well. So I think in a way, them wielding different artifacts that would, by definition, let them lead Mandalore is going to create a divide. Well, and I think she's, yeah, she's biding her time, right? She's, I think she's also in this moment, she's coming to terms with what she just saw. Like, she almost can't believe it. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think she's too smart to just drop that knowledge without considering all the outcomes. Mm -hmm. And so she's got to take her time with it. Um, We're getting Grogu's first words soon. I think it's going to happen this season, Mm -hmm. um, which is so exciting. I will say, though, as excited as I am about that thought, I also was kind of like weirded out by it at the same time because I'm like... Do I want to hear Grogu talking all the time? Like, do I want to get a, a, you know, next season, do I want Grogu to just be like chatting it up all the time? I don't think that that's what's going to end up happening. No. Like, I think it's how babies learn to speak. Exactly. You'll hear some few words at first and stuff. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. There'll be some things that'll be very audible. Like maybe it will be, this is the way that we hear and that we, you know, we understand. But I think after that, it could be little fragments of sentences and and words and stuff like that. I don't know if he's just going to be a chatty McGee. You know, following. no, but even still, just even hearing him say a word, I'm still, I don't know, I don't, I, I'm weirded out by it. I'll probably get used to it. It'll probably be the most adorable thing when it happens uh, officially. But I did like how they both like looked back at him and they're just like, "What the fuck? <laughs> did he just say that?" <laughs> um, <laughs> anyways, just as they look back at Grogu, they come under fire from a squadron of Tie interceptors, uh, and knowing the shield won't hold, Bo asks Din to take the guns and hold them off believing they might be members of a gang led by an Imperial uh, warlord. Uh, they continue down onto the planet. Din makes a jump, just barely passing the interceptors midair, and he uses his jetpack to land safely and then quickly boards the N1. Uh, he takes out the first interceptor in a spectacular fashion, and after avoiding uh, and destroying the remaining ships, Bo and Din find a moment of peace. However, this moment is interrupted when Bo witnesses her castle being bombed in the distance. Enraged, she makes a push to take out the bombers. Din notices they are incredibly outnumbered, and he steers her away. He sends her jump coordinates to a location they won't find them, and the two of them blast off into hyperspace. So let's talk about this sequence. Uh, What did you think of this incredible chase, this incredible aerial combat? Uh, And then after that, who do you think these TIE fighters were? First off, I got to say that you always talk about the soundtrack, but for this fight, 
the way that they use the Mando little two notes, basically, as soon as he comes in or takes one out, yeah, was so cool. incredible. Like I, this was an, a great starfight scene, and it happened on a planet with canyons. It was very, you know, episode one pod racing, but with mm-hmm. cool ships and explosions. It was everything I want from a Star Wars, you know, starfight. Yeah, these are yeah. these are some of the, I think the most incredible aerial combat moments we've ever gotten in. Star Wars, and I know I said that, what, during our episode one uh, Watch Club, but even here, it's just, I think it's incredibly awesome to see the, like, the N1 uh, basically going vertical a second after launch is so cool. The versatility of that ship is insane. And then to see the N1 against ties, I think, is really, really cool, too, because you're getting this wonderful mixture of the Star Wars, like, for me, it's the Star Wars that I grew up with with yeah, the N1 and then the Star Wars that my dad grew up with with the ties and they're fighting each other and it's just so freaking cool and can you clarify something for me uh Darcy or Justin she might not have realized it but did Bo-Katan pull a tech turn is that what happened there was that a tech turn would you call it a tech turn I don't know if it was a tech turn. I mean, the the whole cutting engines and turning it back on is not new in Star Wars. Tech didn't right. come up with that. There that's just a try and true too much credit pilot move basically so, yeah, that's, so that's cool. more omega looking up to him in that in that case but yeah she like that the way that she can fly this this gauntlet took me right back to the clone wars when we saw them in, in animated form going through their starfight so it was yeah. really cool to again have that nostalgia kick from a different angle coming into this modern star wars it was really cool yeah starfights have been well improved even with andor uh there were some great uh in space battles and and i think that this is yet another example of the improvement and just the idea of keeping the tension, right? Like the way that Mando goes straight up and then falls, you know, and then, you know, pulls back, shoots, and then flies through the wreckage, right? Like it was just the way it cuts and like you have that moment of like, is he going to be able to make it? And you know he's going to, but then the way they they cut from like him pulling, cocking the gun, blasting, blowing right through it, it was so well done. Um, that N1 is a, like, that would be, like, my ship of choice for sure. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, like, it's so nimble. It's so light. Uh, it just whips and cuts corners so well. Like, in comparison to Bo-Katan's ship, her ship feels large and clunky. But, yeah, like, the starfights are just our next level for Star Wars. And, I, and I, I think that it adds a lot to evolving the Star Wars, you know, look. Um, but in regards to your second question, Nate, uh, about who who it could be. I don't know. Could this be, could this be Thrawn? Could these be pe- people of Thrawn? Like yeah, it, part of his, his, his team? Yeah. Cause he was a huge uh, proponent in the defender program. Like mm. he was very much pushing for a shielded starfighter that could compete with X-Wings. So that is what we see in this, uh, this starfight are those, you know, improved ties. So mm. I'm wondering if that's him or again, later on in the episode, we get another, you know, kind of, bomb dropped where Moff Gideon might still be out there type thing and again he has a lot of sway even after it the, could be the him too the Empire, yeah, it, so. could, it could be that's, that's those are the two choices in my opinion yeah. well I mean speaking of bombs dropping right like with the Thai bombers being a part of this fleet and we know that Gideon has had access to Thai mm-hmm. bombers in the past maybe that's kind of his thing now that he's an imperial warlord it's like he's well, the yes. Thai bomber guy yeah. um so yeah i was i was kind of thinking in the line of of Thrawn or or Gideon um i think dude it would be so incredible to get to see them both on screen at the same time like Giancarlo Esposito and then Thrawn like whoever they get to play him it doesn't matter those two on screen eating up a scene together 
would be phenomenal. And I, I honestly, I really hope we get to see it at some point. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. Gideon kind of seems like a human supremacist, which is a lot of people who rose to power in the Empire, they were. That was the Empire's whole shtick. Mm-hmm. And so working with a, 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 a Chiss would not maybe... No, I don't well. think they would work together. I'm, no, I want to see, saying, them, oh, I want see them going oh, against each other. It would be other? opposing one another. Oh. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Yes, I think, give me that, please. That's yeah. I, I think misunderstood I think, that's, that would be awesome. I think that's more likely to happen than not. I think that yeah. we will understand uh, once we do get the introduction of Thrawn. And I, I, I do think he's going to be playing a part in this Mandoverse, if you will, that mm-hmm. uh, uh, of the canon that we're, we're, we're experiencing. So... Yeah, I, I don't think it's far-fetched to deny the fact that it will happen. It will happen. And uh, kudos again to Joseph Shirley in this sequence. Like, you already called it Darcy with the flute, but, like, the music was so outstanding in this in this chase. Like, he is absolutely killing it. And, like, you've got the, the, the drums in the background, and then you kind of get a little, at a moment, a certain moment, there's, like, this, like, trap-sounding drum in the background, and I'm like, let's freaking go right now. Like, it is so... So well done. Um, yeah, man. And and I think I loved how we also did get a little bit of um, some of that goofy Din Djarin personality that has sort of started to spring up a little bit more when she asks him if he took any damage. And he's all cocky. He's like, not a scratch. And I'm just like, let's go, Din. Like, I want, I know the Rogue One movie was shelved. I want Star Wars Top Gun right now, please. And if it stars Din Djarin in his N1, I'm you mean okay Rogue with Squadron? That. Figure it out. Yeah, yeah. Figure it I out. Think oh, sorry. Squadron. Would I say Rogue One? Yes, Rogue you did. Squadron. Yeah. Rogue Squadron. Yes. Uh, okay. Let's keep going here. So then we take a narrative hard left onto the planet of Coruscant, where Doctor Pen Pershing is giving a TED talk sponsored by the Amnesty Program. He discusses his past failures of working with the with a desperate individual intent on clone, using cloning technology to secure more power for himself. He ensures the audience uh, that his original intentions were good. He mentions how he lost his mother when, uh, when he was young. He lost her to heart failure and had once, if he had simple organ cloning uh, available on his home world, her death would have been easily preventable. He mentions that thanks to the groundbreaking work of the Kaminoans, they can clone an individual using a single genetic strand. What his work explored was the ability to create replicas that incorporated the best genetic attributes of both donors. After walking out of the auditorium, Pershing is immediately surrounded by some local rich dignitaries uh, who remind him just how lucky they are to have him working, uh, or sorry, remind him just how lucky he is to have him working for a government that uh, appreciates his contribution. They tell him he's just so brave and he's such an inspiration. And there's that one guy that's just like, oh, I I can't even remember what army wanted to get me into the army. Uh, So (laughs) a couple things here. First, um, you know, we, we have a little more insight into what Pershing was working on. Uh, what do you think his intentions were for this new cloning tech? Uh, why do you think, you know, he needed Grogu? And uh, what do you think the, of these these rich people fawning over him with compliments? I mean, I appreciate that they went to the lengths to, to explain why, like what his goal was with cloning and all that stuff. But it did feel a bit you know, science heavy. And for the average viewer, that would seem like a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And my mom and my brother, who I was watching the episode with, they were both like, what is he talking about? Like, I I get the gist of it, but why are they spending so long to explain it like in depth like that? It would just seem like an interesting choice to take it so like literally almost. It's a a bit of a pageantry 
right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you referred to, I think even, I think New Rockstars made the same reference. It's a TED talk of like the work that he was doing and he's trying to give it justification as to how it'll help the New Republic. Um, I think what this very much confirms is somehow Palpatine returned. Uh, I think this is where we get the idea of the science that he's working on that would inevitably fuel uh, what would be the cloning that that they'll use to bring back Palpatine? Because he's obviously talking about taking the 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 best parts of of two different types of DNA to to create something new, um, and I think that's probably why he was using Grogu. Um, it's it's safe to say that this is a a way to speed up the answers for the questions that people have had for the last two seasons about how cloning really plays a part and what work Pershing is doing. I don't know if he knows exactly who it was for, right? Because I think he's he's studied the Kaminoan technology. He's used it. He understands what it is. And he's probably been commissioned to do so, to, to do that uh, under what was left of the Galactic Empire, under Gideon, to keep that research going. But obviously now with everything that happened being apprehended, he's here kind of you know, on a pageantry tour saying like, this is what my technology can do. This is what I can provide to the new Republic. And even in the moments as he's delivering the speech, he's, he's reluctant. You see the subtle twitches in his hands, uh, the tugging on his ear as a reminder of, of what the new Republic really does look like. Right. So I think that there's these moments that you see him not really fully believing that, you know, the new Republic is, is his savior, right? He thinks that they are very much the problem. Yeah, I think um I think it's it is interesting though like he's just been recently rehabilitated into the new republic and obviously yeah Justin it's it's leading to Snoke Palpatine returning uh I was theorizing on our bad batch watch club that it could be you know the, there's some stuff going on there that could be related to this same research that could be going into creating the Sith Eternal Army, mm-hmm. uh, which I think makes a lot of sense. And, you know, maybe the donor for Snoke uh, from a body standpoint isn't a Force-sensitive being, and that is where Grogu comes in. Um, I'm just curious if Grogu himself uh, is a clone, uh, either of, of Yaddle or, or Yoda. I know we've kind of brought this up in the past, but I think there's something to be kind of looked at there. I think it's possible. Um, but I, I will say uh, it is interesting. To, it's kind of cool to see that his as we're calling it a TED talk uh, was taking place in the same opera house yeah. uh, that we, you know, we see another uh, episode three revenge of the Sith, uh, which also has a story central to the theme of betrayal. Uh, you know, poetry, it rhymes as George Lucas says, I just, I love that we've gotten that little detail in there. Um, and then also, you know, I think with the rich people fawning over him, it, it kind of feels like a, a big sting operation. Like, Sure, maybe some of those people, uh, like the guy who doesn't remember what army he was almost being enlisted for, maybe he's just a dumb, rich idiot. Mm. But I think they are. I think it also kind of felt like they were trying to make Pershing feel so blessed and and so loved. They were uh, the savior. It, yeah, it kind of makes me feel like they. Some of those people, maybe not all of them, but some of those people could have been planted by the amnesty program to help with Pershing's conversion. Right. And again, the, the convert being related to many different characters in this episode. We're, we're going to talk more about it, but I, I honestly think that this is our first instance of seeing the New Republic's flaws, the sort of cockiness. Yeah. We're seeing that mirrored uh, to to the Bad Batch and how the Empire 
is very cocky in their approach and oh, that no one's going to challenge them. I think they think that they're in, in a peacetime. There's no more war. They've beat the emperor. They've we, they've beat the galactic empire. There's there's no need for this. So I think that there's a sense of that arrogance that kind of runs in and they look at you know themselves as being the savior to Pershing and giving him a second chance uh, to, to matter and to do work. And I think that that in itself is is sort of the first instance of us seeing the hole that the First Order will definitely fill uh, in terms of challenging the New Republic. I, I don't know. I got the feeling that this is just to show that how out of touch the high society can be on this city. Yeah. Like, I feel like they were like the fact that the guy didn't remember what army he was joining. He's like, it, it never mattered to him. These people are mm-hmm. above all the fighting and all that stuff. It never mm-hmm. comes to Coruscant. So why should they care? And I think that was... Like that's what I got from this scene at least was the fact that these people are so out of touch that they'll say anything just to seem important to make themselves feel better type thing. They're just cocky high society people, and that's probably the last people you want to surround such an un, like unsure person with because they'll you know talk his ear off and maybe he'll take it the wrong way type thing. So yeah, this is a really interesting episode because again I'm I was getting mad bad batch vibes in terms of how they are handling yeah people who fought in this. There's war a lot of parallels then. Yeah, a lot of parallels between all the shows going on right now. It's it's a very interesting time of Star Wars where everything is paralleling something. <laughs> but it's it's nice because I think it's all intentional. You can see that the Andor influence has has impacted man the Mandalorian experience. Do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. just in the idea of they're all sharing. It's like all of these shows and their creators and their writers are just in a sandbox playing together with their Star Wars toys. You know what I mean? So I think it's it's definitely we're seeing overlap and we're seeing things connect. And I think that that's all very intentional uh, for why these mm-hmm. these series are dropping at specific points in time. Well, I'm looking forward to Young Jedi Adventures when Nubs uh, becomes the next mayor of the town and has to go on some sort of political campaign. Um, but I will also say one last thing on these uh, these rich people. Um, after watching two seasons of White Lotus and then Justin, you know, with our Oscars episode, we talked about Triangle of Sadness. Honestly, I could go for a series about these rich people. We're kind of getting that with Mon Mothma's family in Andor. But imagine like a White Lotus style narrative on the Halcyon or like at Canto Bight or something like that. Like just with a bunch of these rich assholes who get what's coming to them. Like I would be so down to see that in Star Wars. (laughs) Ryan Johnson's movies come out. Who knows? That might be his Oh, man. Benoit, Benoit, Benoit Blanc, Blanc in, space. in space. Let's go, dude! <laughs> I would be so down for that. That sounds incredible. That would be that would be phenomenal. You know what? Instead of Benoit Blanc, though, uh, who was the character in Last Jedi um, that was like the guy that betrayed them and was like, "Oh, well, they're you know they're buying and selling guns on both sides." What was DJ. that guy's name? DJ. Oh, DJ. Yeah, DJ. DJ. Yeah, yeah. Dude, yeah. get DJ as the star of that. Like, let's go, man. That would be so sick. Um, okay, let's keep going here. After an enduring. You know, sort of uh, after enduring a short trip with a very talkative droid, which, by the way, Pershing made the ultimate mistake here by not having a pair of headphones or something <laughs> when getting into this Uber. Like, I, you know, I, have you guys been there before when you're going to get into an Uber and you're like, I know for me, I'm too polite to say I don't want to talk right now. Do you guys? Do you guys well, ever I just t- like the fact that on Uber, there's an option where he can be like, don't talk to me on the app or you even get in the car. He doesn't, you know like- what? He's new. He doesn't know how to use the app. That's that's. 
That's what it was. Most of them are, most people are are pretty understanding of that. You know, if you engage in conversation, then they'll engage right. in conversation. Yeah, I could imagine you, if you were an Uber driver, you'd just be chatting people up all the time. Like, <laughs> I respect their decision How was your in day? the app. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then that talkative Uber droid uh, looking a lot like that Ralph McQuarrie concept art for C3PO. I thought mm-hmm. that was really cute. And I think these, honestly, and, and listen, we, I think Justin, I, was it you and I, Justin, that got flack from Kevin for being upset about the very blatant uh, inclusions of nostalgic filled Easter eggs in previous episodes of Mandalorian. But here, these deep cuts, I appreciate these so much more uh, instead of just having like, oh, there's that creature in the background. Like this is some stuff that is like, you know, this this Ralph McQuarrie concept art or even some of the things that he's saying about some of these this this very uh, you know expanded lore drop sort of stuff. Um, I don't know. I think it's really cool. He, you know, he's talking about some sort of um, Malastare mud scrapper. I can't remember the name of it. <laughs> some flying beast, uh, which is really really cool. Anyways, Pershing arrives at the Amnesty Program housing uh, where he passes by a table of Amnesty officers who ask him to join them for a drink. He introduces himself as Amnesty Scientist L five two and tells Amnesty Officer. M43, uh, that he was just transferred from the Reintegration Institute. M43 introduces him to G27, M40, and G68, who he immediately recognizes from his time on Moff Gideon's ship. G27 says uh, he heard that Gideon escaped en route uh, to the war tribunal, uh, but M40 says, no, 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 that was just a cover, and that he was actually hooked up to a mind flare. And then G68 completely di- you know, goes the other way with the topic, and she says, I try not to think about him anymore. Uh, and thanks to the rehabilitation program, she can continue to the, uh, sorry, she can contribute to the New Republic. M43 hands Pershing a drink, uh, and they all raise a glass to the New Republic. They share a drink and discuss the everyday positives of working under the Empire. Pershing mentions how he misses the travel biscuits. And later in his jammies, Pershing is ready to go to sleep uh, when somebody rings the doorbell to his room, plays a bit of Nicky Nicky Nine Doors, runs away. But he looks down and he sees a black rations box full of Empire-wrapped travel biscuits. So do you folks think... Gideon actually did escape was he actually maybe put through a mind flare of some kind uh and what do you think of the new republic's amnesty program well first off I gotta say I think it's incredibly dehumanizing to take away their names kind of like the empire did with their troopers uh, and that they're only numbers and now we're seeing Mm -hmm. the same thing that the republic's doing so that is a bit like but all these people who were fought for the republic and to to be like they all knew what the empire did. So why, why did this decision go about so easily? Like, why was that okay to name, to take away these names? That was my biggest, my biggest, you know, question with this, the scene. Well, it's almost like they're leaning into what the empire did, right? Like they're, they're just being, mm-hmm. they're just saying like, Oh, we're just going to continue what the empire was doing with this, but you know, we'll just, we're, we're doing it for good. Right. And I think, again, it just kind of connects back to Andor. it's like, that's a pro- point of perspective on what side you're on. You could be on the bad side thinking that you're doing good. You could be on the good side doing bad things. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's all point of perspective. So that said, it it goes to show that this new republic that is in place that is 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 taking over for the empire. But at the end of the day, are they really taking over for the empire, or are they just replacing it? Because I totally agree. I think it's totally dehumanizing to to just take away their names. But I don't know. Do do all of them necessarily have names if they? 
were were part of of the empire. Well, again, Maybe only troopers in the empire had no names because they were okay. conscripted upon conscription. They were giving the number, but anyone part of the ISB and Imperial Navy had a name. They were officer so and so and stuff right. like that. So right. this they've gone a step further in that anyone who worked for the empire now has no name, and that's what I thought was. Like they they win it they won up the empire which is something that mm. I thought the republic would be like maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> well, speaking of the ISB, I mean, I thought that the housing, uh, the amnesty program housing looks a lot like where Cyril Karn lived uh, in Andor. And and their outfits. Why are they wearing the same thing they wore when they worked for the Empire? That was another big confusing thing. Well, and this is the thing. Like, it's just interesting how they're they're sort of. Um, they they want to be so different, but there's certain things yeah. that they have to reuse. They can't not reuse those buildings. And then they're maybe they're like, we don't, you know what? We actually don't have the budget to get new <laughs> new uniforms, so let's just put a shiny badge on it, and I'm sure they'll be fine. And and I think this is this is them keeping all their converts uh, within close proximity to their jobs, right? It's it's meant to look like, hey, this is a positive thing. We get to live here, but it's really like, no, no, no. This is so you can get to your your you know work on time and 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 work to death <laughs> yeah it's 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 public housing it's like school housing in a sense right you know what i mean right. so they these people they have nothing so they're set up with a house they're set up with that and then they're contributing back to the new republic but i think i think it's all intentional for them to be using you know letter numbered names and you know using the same outfits and and stuff like that the new republic is just you know maybe it's being perceived as more of like a new empire you know what i mean like it's it's just it, it's just a point of perspective right like they're doing good, but you know, are they? I don't know. It's that's that's the biggest question, right? So, well, I also wanted to say if shortbread cookies were that hard to find in the galaxy, I probably, you know, I think that's understandable missing those those biscuits. <laughs> uh, but I do think it's super suspicious that the conversation these officers are having, where they're reminiscing over the things they missed about the Empire, like it's just it's perfect timing, and you have to wonder if. If, again, if it's all an act, like maybe all of not just G68, maybe all of them were were in on uh, this, you know, OK, he's coming. OK, let's start talking about this. Um, I also want to shout out uh, Katie O'Brien uh, here. Great in this episode. Um, and we recently just saw her as Gentora uh, in Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantum Mania. And I thought she was great in that uh, movie as well for the limited time that we got her. Um, but I think, you know, going back to Gideon here, these being the prominent two rumors, right? And I think you, you, you were mentioning it earlier, Justin. These are the first signs that the New Republic is not doing great. And either they're not good at p prisoner transports or they're torturing their captives in the same way that the empire that they fought against all these years is doing. And so I think it's 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 like in a way it's it's almost like a message to the rest of the galaxy to sort of just say like you were saying are we at, are we in a better place? Are we really learning from our mistakes? Exactly. And I I think it's all intentional. I think that that's what this episode does really 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 well. So right? Good. The from from the pageantry of 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 putting uh, pushing on stage to talk about his technology and you just see the pompous arrogant nature of who these rich people are um yeah i think that coming here and seeing what this amnesty program is it it does feel similar to that of of an empire run program uh so it's i think it's all intentional and i also just want to quickly shout out those lego cups uh that like stack on top of each other can we like those how do we dope. get those yeah. 
You mean I the space smeared off ice? Is that's that what it, what it was? That's what it looked like to me. So I mean, dope. that cloudy white booze substance, it's got to be ice. I just want cups that can like do that, though. I want them to stick stick together and pop off. Oh, dude, so sick. In regards to Gideon, though, I, I, I just wanted to say, I think that yeah. um, it is likely that he escaped. I think that that is probably the likelier of the two scenarios. But I like that they seed plant the mind flare. Uh, you know, the, it's not their first time doing it, but you know, I think it was, I think it was in, in season one. And Cara Dune um, mentions it. Yeah. And Cara Dune mentions it. And then, and then I think, uh, uh, Grief Cargo is like, oh, that's, that's just myth. That's just scare tactics. Right. right? Yeah. Um, like they wouldn't do that. Right. So I think it just helps to remind us of, of that. And obviously what we will see at the end, um, when we get there, but yeah, I, I think that it's likely that Gideon got away. And and now thinking about it, I was thinking like it could be Thrawn, maybe just because I was hoping for it would be Thrawn. But I think it makes sense that those those Tie Fighters at the top were definitely sent by Gideon, because who else would want her head and send that many Tie Fighters to just absolutely demolish your home? Mm. Mm-hmm. I mean, I also the it's interesting that the Gideon name dropped happened the same time we are like having this introduction between uh was G68. Yeah. I can't remember her yeah. actual name that we hear later on yeah. in the episode. And I mean, I immediately didn't trust her, but then when you because of the way she appeared and she's putting on this new uniform, like clearly she hasn't been out of this reintegration office very quickly or or something. I just didn't trust her from minute one. And then this hearing Gideon's name and how she's like trying to steer away from the Gideon conversation. Well, like, she she was sent there by him to get Pershing back. Sure. That's all I could feel. Mm-hmm. All I could get from this episode. That was apparent in in the first scene on Coruscant when she walks in. We see that tug of the jacket, yeah. and she yeah. comes in. And she sits yeah. down in her seat, and you can see that there's an air of suspicion around her already. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that putting that scene before already sets that up, and then to see her here. You know something's up. Well, and I think, you know, speaking of that body language of, of tugging on the, the jacket, it that's a very Gideon thing to do. You know, we've seen Gideon before where he sort of like fixes his collar before he walks out or what have you, right? Like, I, I feel like it's, yeah, but it's, I do feel like it's, it's maybe something of of something you know maybe her training maybe it is genetic maybe military. they are it's military related in some it's way military oh yeah, um, yeah. it's you it's hundred percent uniform in pristine condition and be perfectly yeah. aligned or be written up all right well let's keep going here back at the office Pershing is delivered another set of data disks ready to be archived uh, and what seems to be just another Bendu day turns in, out to be uh, a fun night out. Uh, as G68 invites Pershing out to see Monument Plaza, where they enjoy some glowing popsicles. Uh, There's a magician, a juggling droid on stilts, uh, and the peak of Umate, the highest mountain on Coruscant. G68 tells an apprehensive Pershing to touch the mountain, to just touch it. Uh, And after he he declines, she eggs him on, saying, Live a little, Doc. It's not the Empire. Uh, uh, so he attempts to touch it, uh, and then a security droid floats in, stops him, scares him, tragically dropping his glowing popsicle onto the ground, uh, and G-68 laughs with him and offers to buy him, uh, a drink, uh, a photon, uh, fizzle, or proton fizzle, one of the two. Uh, so what did you guys think of Pershing's new job and his night out with G-68? Again, very dehumanizing job with the way that he's just doing data entry that, I'm sure droids could probably handle like it. it uh, it's a slap in the face, especially after that first scene with him, where he's being talked up about how it, it must feel great to work for an empire that that can use your powers for good or or anything like that. And he's stuck behind a computer doing a mindless job. It, it's very, 
Very dehumanizing, I think. Well, even that guy well, also, is yeah. like, he's like, yo, I saw your TED talk. Like, that was bomb ass. What are you doing down here? Like, he's like, he's like, you're you're too talented to be here in data yeah. archival. Um, so yeah, and and uh, again, Cyril Karn, I think, worked in that exact same cubicle. Like, it looks so similar uh, well, to that same just, building, well, just refurbished. But- Sure, but I think it's the visual language. It's it's continuing that look and aesthetic across Star Wars. Like if that's something that you know Favreau and and um, Filoni have seen, what Tony Gilroy did, and it's like, yeah, okay, let's implement more of that into what we're doing. That's smart, right? You're 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 allowing creators to do what they can, but then you're also finding ways to bring that in so that it feels more, uh, you know, holistic to the overall all. Star Wars experience. So I think it all worked really well. And I think it's purposeful that it calls back to Andor and it feels like Andor, right? Like I think that that's that's all intentional for us to kind of have that association and, and why it was set designed that way. To see, yeah, to see him doing archival data management of, of, of whatever kind is is I guess it's seen as a low, a low tier job because yeah, droids could probably handle that a lot a lot better right and probably faster but um those those glowing popsicles looked delicious what flavors do you guys want if you i'm gonna go to the store right now get some for you what 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 flavor do you want well i'd go for a red one i'd go for a red what one. banana okay. popsicles are always the best for me you're gonna so. get a yellow glowing popsicle i yeah, was gonna banana get banana flavored yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm getting a blue one anytime there's a blue icy thing i'm getting blue justin's getting a red one you know it's interesting because um g68's favorite color uh, you know, popsicle was red, and she only liked the know, red biscuits. I, know. I saw, I know, She's I saw. Evil. <laughs> she she only liked the red biscuits. She ate the yellow ones too. No, dude. Yeah, yeah. but dude, she said that she. It, loved it was those weird red to ones. like the red ones with yes. that reaction from. And the everyone rest of them. was like, "Yo, you like those red ones? Tasted like ass. Like, what are you talking? It's like someone about? liking black licorice. <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> uh, those are the black licorice of the Star Wars universe, and she likes them because she's evil. Um, I love how we see she's conditioning him him here on their little date. Um, and she's got a, you know, I think she's. She's. I think she's got to be more than just a second in command to Moff Gideon. Like she's, she's working him perfectly here. And you know, he's. She's like, don't worry, uh, you're not going to get in trouble. It's not like the Empire. Which, by the way, that line hits so hard the second time you watch this episode. Um, just mm-hmm. because, again, as much as they want to be different, and we, I know we keep bringing this up, but as much as they want to be different, <laughs> they're doing they? the same. They're doing the same yeah. things yeah. as their enemies. Uh, and yeah, the the when the moment she says it's not like the Empire, I'm like, oh. You, you know, oh, you you're, know. You're, you're, that's, that was a red herring right there. You're like, yeah, you're, right there. you're still, yeah, exactly. You're still part <laughs> of it. Um, yeah, no, I, I think that, um, I, I watched the, the same video that I think you watched uh, as well, Nate, the, the new Rockstars one. I liked how they pointed out the way that here it's, it's, it's G68 feeling out and, and getting Pershing to the point of realization that his, his research mattered and that could be beneficial. Like she is, is almost like in a, in a sense being like the emperor, you know, wielding the force and, and, and corrupting his mind so that he can think about what, what is actually going on. Right. And that kind of unravels him that, that on, that begins the unravel and this sort of very uh, disarming situation of just going out and, and experiencing the nightlife on Coruscant. So, you know, kudos to them for really like highlighting that, but, and, and showcasing that in a way that feels, you know, again, we're looking at just real people. 
right? And yeah. it's there's no force wielding that's happening. And it's that it's that sense of corruption. It's that sense of lying. It's that sense of wielding power over someone else. So yeah, I lo- I love that part. A couple of neat details to point out in this sequence. Uh, Monument Plaza uh, has been a couple times we've seen it before. Um, the most, I think the one that sticks out the most, Duchess Satine and Obi-Wan went on a secret date there. Uh, in the Clone Wars, and that, that's pretty dope. Um, I think the music playing in the background uh, with the circus-style composition. Style. Yeah. yeah, it was like March of the Resistance theme from The Force Awakens, which I think kind of pokes... Right, and it kind of pokes fun at them, just like, oh, they're just a bunch of clowns. Um, and then I think, uh, you know, thanks to uh, Twitter for pointing out uh, the magician that they see is Dean Cudney, uh, the cinematographer for the episode, as well as the back to the future trilogy uh which is really dope and uh and yeah he has that little dragon thing there um but yeah no i think i think overall this this sequence was was great because i think and even this entire episode with with g68 there were a lot of moments where i'm like on one side i'm like yeah she's kind of right and then another side i'm like no she's awful don't listen to her and then another side i'm like no she's kind of right like it had me going back and forth kind of like pershing and i really appreciated that with the dialogue I just didn't trust her. Just never trust her. She yeah, had no, no it's, popsicles. It's yeah. clear. It was yeah. it was definitely clear that she was she was in control and she was trying to get him to 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 think differently about his situation just so that could be the catalyst for for what would be next. Well, let's get back to what's next here. Back at an amnesty building, Pershing is going through a questioning session from a droid put in place to measure his reintegration. He asks the droid if it was okay to pursue his own research recreationally, and he's turned down as his research includes cloning and genetic engineering, which is prohibited by the Coruscant Accords. Uh, which the Coruscant Accords, I'm just like, yeah, let's, you know, marvel there. Uh, so <laughs> it just reminds just me of laws. the... Just what, laws. Yeah. They're know, just laws, the, yeah. Accords, accords. accords are laws. Accords yeah. are a real thing. They're not thing, just yeah. you know what? universe, Nate. Yeah, That's, yeah you're exactly. wrong. You're wrong. Go eat your red popsicles, okay? You don't know. Uh, but Pershing walks out to see G68 sitting by herself, and he sits down to uh, next to her, lamenting how his research uh, is in, uh, sorry, how his research in the right hands could still really help people. She asks him what he'd need to do to continue, and she says they can get a mobile lab station, but they'd have to go outside their designated perimeter. She says she's willing to, to take the risk because, uh, sorry, the risk of being sent back to the reintegration center if his research is really as important as he says it is, uh, and she recommends that he sleeps on the decision. Back at his office, he's told to continue archiving equipment, but when uh, when he questions why it all needs to be destroyed, he's told it's because the, it's imperial technology, okay? Technology, he says, is still able to be put to good use, but then he gets the runaround, and they, they're running out of time. Uh, Pershing, now frustrated, undergoes yet another reintegration questioning session, and after confirming that his main objective is to help the New Republic, he quickly exits and immediately tells G68 uh, that he's down to go get that mobile lab station. So why do you think the New Republic is so against using Imperial technology? Um, I mean, it, it can't all be evil, right? Like, they, they must be able to, to you know, reuse even some of it, uh, even if it isn't for war. Well, I think a lot of this comes back to that first scene where the, the, all the high society people are schmoozing. The people who are in power in the New Republic aren't the people who fought against the Empire in the Rebellion. Right. Like, we hear them saying that they're also taking apart or decommissioning the Alliance fleet. So yes. the fact that 
the rebellion was built on these scraps, people bringing together anything they could find all these resources. You'd think that would carry over if the people who fought were in power, but yeah, that, that's it's, not the case. Yeah. It's just the people who have the most money who are in power and they just see the name Imperial and be like, oh, well, I got to go against that now because we are a new thing. And that's where exactly. this like vacuum is being formed is that the people who fought aren't the people in power. And that's a very big issue, obviously. Yeah, it's definitely a conflict of interest to to take the technology of the Imperial to try to benefit. I think it makes sense that they're destroying it. But I think the thing that stood out to me in this conversation is the fact that they're decommissioning the Alliance. That is the Alliance that saved the asses of everyone. That is the fleet that was built by rebels. And I think the takeaway from this part of the story is how the resistance fits into the story as an act against the First Order that will obviously challenge the New Republic at some point. Again, it seems as though they're kind of coasting. They're happy that there's no war. So they're decommissioning all of their their fleets and the alliances no more. So crazy how these little tidbits really have bigger implications to the to the overall story. But again, they're making these decisions of not using some technology and then other technology. They're going to give it a new name later on in the episode and all of a sudden it's OK. Um, but you're right, Justin, the, the decommissioning of the Alliance fleet. Um, I haven't read it. Uh, I asked Darcy if you read it because he's our resident uh, reader. But um, Bloodline by Claudia Gray. Uh, apparently the narrative in that oh, is yeah. is Leia is wholeheartedly against the decision uh, to decommission the Alliance fleet. And that's actually why she leaves to create the resistance. Um, and you got it. You know, that's exactly it. The, the, they're, you know, they're opening themselves up to just be dominated uh, by whatever ends up becoming uh, the first order. Uh, also, you notice every time he's uh, Pershing is about to go off script, you know, he he and you know, he's questioning the authority of his uh, his new government. He touches his ear. And uh, Justin, you called it out earlier. That's exactly where he was clipped when Cara Dune shot the Imperial officer that was holding him hostage, uh, who compared the destruction of Alderaan to the destruction of the Death Star. And I think it's, yeah, he's, he's thinking about how these two groups are more alike than they'd like to admit. And he's, I think, out of everyone, Pershing is the only one that's really seeing clearly uh, in this episode because he's really seeing both like, sides. wow, both sides are not great here. Uh, and, and it's just unfortunate what ends up happening to him, but we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> um, so the next night rolls around and Pershing uh, and G68 sneak out onto a train once on board G68 sort of aligns with the crowd and there's a big alien guy and she's like tongs days. Am I right? Uh, and Pershing admires the views of the city, but gets you know even more worried if that's even possible when G68 tells him they're heading to a disposal yard to get the mobile lab station off of an abandoned Imperial Star Cruiser. Uh, their conversation is cut short as two ticket droids start checking passengers' tickets, uh, and they both stand up and proceed to make their way to the back of the train, hopping from car to car. Eventually, they reach the end and both make a jump for it, landing safely on a conveniently placed pillow uh, right next to the abandoned Star Cruiser. So before we continue, um, did you guys know that there's names of the days of the week in Star Wars, or at least on Coruscant? Well, it's funny you mentioned that. I was listening to a High Republic audiobook, and they're talking about something that happens over the course of you know six or seven days, and they never mention what day it is in the week. And I found myself thinking, like, what are the days of a week in Star Wars? And to get it like almost two days later, the answer of at least one of them, yeah, I thought that was 
really fun and just weird how they my mind was going there before I knew it would be revealed. Well, I did some digging. <laughs> yeah, uh, Prime Day is the first day. Centax Day. Then Tongs Day is like the Wednesday, I guess, of the week. Okay, Hump Day. <laughs> hump yeah. Day, right? And then Zell Day. Uh, and then the and fifth then day, Bendu day. Ben day. And then Bendu, obviously, big Star Wars yeah. nerds, Bendu. We all know the Bendu uh, from Rebels. But um, but yeah, I just, I, I was like, I heard, you know, Bendu Day at first. I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. And then when she's like, Tongs Day. Um, and supposedly, according to uh, to Star Wars Explains, uh, or Explained, this is uh, this only a thing on Coruscant. I, I believe mm-hmm. uh, it's we're not necessarily everywhere in the galaxy that they use this uh, five yeah. day week structure. But well, yeah, time we'll passes we'll differently keep... on every planet. So yeah, exactly. They rotate. They we'll circle their stars at different rates, so it makes sense. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Uh, I guess today would be Bendu Day as we're recording this. Uh, but they enter inside the abandoned ship, uh, and while doing so, G sixty eight apologizes for never really saying hi to Pershing back on back on Gideon's ship. Uh, he says, no need to apologize, and the two introduce themselves. Elia Kane, communications officer, and Dr. Penn Pershing, scientist. She says, nice to meet you, and uh, just as they find the mobile lab and the gear he needs, they hear a noise in the distance that turns out to be a bunch of New Republic officers. They end up caught in a spotlight, uh, and it's at this moment that Pershing realizes he's being betrayed. Lured here as part of a trap set by Elia. Uh, she steps in front of him and takes the mobile lab away as he's arrested. The next morning, Pershing awakens uh, strapped to a table, and he's freaked out as they, they set up a mind flare around his head. The Mon Calamari doctor tells him, it's not a mind flare, it's a 602 mitigator, uh, a non-invasive experimental treatment. And I love how he's like, it was very refreshing when I did it. I'm like, okay, dude. Uh, and it's, it's recently been approved for rehabilitation. Uh, so it's still very experimental tech. Pershing says uh, it was a trap and that she set him up. Elia asks <laughs> the other officer if she can stay in the room to make sure her friend is okay. And then once she's left alone, she dials the knob up to 11, smiles, and takes a big old bite out of a travel biscuit. So incredible moment of betrayal here. What did you think of Elia's turn uh, and who she is truly working for? Uh, and, uh, and, and is she, you know, is she working extra hard for the new Republic to get ahead or is she still working for maybe someone else, Gideon, uh, and wants to cover up any evidence or connection to him? What are your thoughts? I feel like, I feel like we've answered a lot of this already, but I think this was just the, the conclusion to what we already knew. You know, you saw that a mile away. She is, she is working for someone. She is there on a mission. She is definitely infiltrating this amnesty group to get to Pershing specifically. Um, and I think that all just comes clear. And, and especially given the fact, like uh, you said, when we're introduced to her, it's from the the pull on her jacket and the adjustment of her badge. And here, when she watches as she dials that thing up to 11, she pulls on her jacket. It's like she's, that's her tell. Just like, just like uh, I guess, uh, Pershing's ear, would be like yeah. ear pull. Um, yeah, it is interesting though, like you said, you know, this is technology that should have probably been decommissioned and destroyed and not used and here they're finding a purpose to justify that use which again is is really the caveat to the entire episode it's like the new republic thinks that they're doing good but they're no different from the empire right and, and there's just fair. Been, 
To be fair, yep. Pershing did look like he was enjoying that thing at first. The, when it was the nice rainbow colors and a soft blue light, he was smiling and enjoying himself. So at low levels, that probably is a great therapeutic device. It's just okay. when it's turned up, becomes very dangerous, sure. which is a lot similar to a lot of medical instruments anyway. So that I can understand why they weren't so quick to decommission. But again, when you look at the scientific equipment, it's just like, but then make that the limit there. Make that the limit yeah. though. Why not make that lower percentage that they have the limit? Why was she able to mm-hmm. then dial it up to 11? It's clear that they didn't decommission a galactic empire approved mind flare device. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like they, they kept it in active working conditions because there should have been someone there to, to manipulate it. So Justin, it's um, a 602 you know, mitigator. Okay. That's what it is. Get it straight. Okay. Or I'm going to, I don't put you in a mind flare. <laughs> Maybe yeah, six oh two is like the dial is the dial that you you can only give right. If you you only go with six six point two. Six point two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, again, I said I didn't trust her from minute one, and this this just proves that she's clearly working for someone who isn't the Republic because this was a very targeted attack on Pershing because without her whispering in his ear this this entire episode, he probably would have quickly adapted to his job and and felt like he was fulfilling somewhat of a role in the Republic. But it was her whispering in the ear saying like, but what about what you were doing? That did have good. You believed it, blah, blah, blah. And that's what led him to this point. So she's clearly working for someone outside the Republic because I don't see anyone in the Republic wanting to do something like that. Like that just seems unnecessary. They wouldn't know to go to that extent, you know, how to pull his buttons and st- push his buttons and everything like that. But I mean, I'm, I'm wondering if, if like, in a way, a lot of this episode, watching it back, did feel very Truman Show at times. And you could almost see it as, as like, they really want to put these uh, people through the ringer to understand. And maybe uh, Elia uh, is a someone who they know is, is is good at doing that based off of her previous history. Um, I, I think it's it's like either they're super smart the new republic or they're super dumb and they can't see what Elia Kane is up to and i like that there's that they're not making that very clear yet at this point um i want to say the really? use of humor i think is incredibly dark uh in this moment between you know the creepy version of the music that plays uh in Jabba's palace in return of the jedi and then of course pershing it's a tra- it was a trap to the mon calamari and i love how the mon cal makes the the exact turn the same physical turn as Admiral Akbar in that moment after saying that line. But he's is confused. So he's like, oh, yeah. he just doesn't get it. He's like, what's what's going on? Yeah. <laughs> what uh, was a trap? <laughs> but listen, I don't think I don't think she's killing him. I don't think she's even necessarily wiping his memory completely. Um, the it, you know again, it, it's what? It, it was meant. To, no, here's here's what I'm saying. I think it was meant to. You know, again, they're saying it was re-engineered to erase bad memories uh, of his time with the Empire. But I think his 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 knowledge and his capabilities are really needed uh, to to run that recovered mobile science lab. Uh, and so I think I think this is a tack to get him to fall in line. I think to be converted yet again for whatever Elia Kane and most likely Gideon or maybe Thrawn uh, might be up to the, the beginnings of the first order. I think this is very similar and, and with his story will be very similar to a good soldiers follow orders situation, uh, which would be pretty ironic considering the source of Pershing's research and its Kaminoan and Order sixty six background uh, are you know kind of shown in this episode. I think it. I just think it would really, really work to say, okay, no, 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 we're not getting rid of this person. Especially like think about it this way too. She can't kill him off. 
the, the, the New Republic just showboated their latest Amnesty Prize-winning convert. They're not going to, like, if he just disappears, I think she's too smart to know that she can't just get rid of him completely. I think she's converting him yet again so that he'll just fall in line with whatever they need him to do. I think she's there to take him, take him out and take out his memories, not kill him but just to wipe his memories because he is a liability and he is a threat to the bigger plan that they have at hand. But the research isn't done, Justin. They need they need his capabilities. Right, but they, they have his research and they might need his capabilities, but I feel like her mission here is to eliminate any liabilities, to get rid of any threats that that challenge the bigger plan and and I think that that's what she's doing that's that is her that was her her mission if you will no, I I'm, I'm on the the side that it was a scare tactic to try and sway him so that they can take him away to wherever Gideon is and have him resume his research because just having someone's research is not the same as having the person who conducts it because his research isn't complete and he was going about it a certain way that only he could continue so I feel like this is her to be just Scaring him to be like the New Republic can't be trusted. They're just like the Empire. Come back to us where we'll at least give you meaning in pursuing your research that that you know can do so much good. I also love how this story is is uh, again. It, it's we're getting to see a mirror version of the timeline, like we've been talking. Right, instead of the rebellion starting and in, in, to form in small groups in Andor, we're getting the First Order. You know being created in these small groups uh, to rebel against, to be their own rebellion against the New Republic. Uh, and I just think that's, I, I don't know, I just, I love the, the, the duality of that. And I think it's, it's so Star Wars. Um, and I think, again, the, 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 like you were saying, Justin, the fact that they kept that knob the way it is, is just proof that there, are, there is evil on both sides. Somebody on that team who was converting into the what do we call it the 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 602 mitigator they were like we're gonna leave this knob the way it is and it's like well then that person is evil well i mean the galaxy is a lot of different species you might need to crank it up to 11 for certain thicker skulled individuals you never know okay, okay. that might be the okay reason. you knew a pop science. you don't know you science, new republic science, apologist okay? i'm sorry over here it's a space <laughs> thing we don't know how science works you can't just no that's fair single it down to that that's there might fair. be a reason that's fair yeah we got to consider <laughs> all species um well listen we we have uh some more folks to get to here we then rejoin din and Bo now on the other side of their hyperspace track uh, Din and Grogu uh, bring Bo to the Mandalorian covert, uh, and they're greeted by Paz Vizsla, and uh, I mean, not really a nice greeting, uh, and they convince him uh, to let them pass so that Din can prove he's redeemed himself in the minds of Mandalore. Uh, Paz lets them enter, saying, we shall see. Uh, and the armorer pours Din's proof into the water of her forge, uh, and as it glows, she says he speaks the truth. She claims that not only is Din Djarin redeemed, but uh, but by Creed, Bo-Katan Kreese is also redeemed. Uh, they all say this is the way, and everybody's celebrating except for Paz, who's he's all pazzed off sitting in the corner. Uh, and we uh, we end this episode yet again with a close up on Bo reacting to what just transpired. And I love that again that the sort of mirror to the the ending of the the second episode where she's just kind of flabbergasted and you it, it's fantastic with the the way that like even though we're not seeing her face you can just tell that her mind is racing uh in this moment so what does this mean for din and Bo going forward now that they're officially members of the children of the watch do you think Bo will actually follow their traditions or do you think she'll struggle to follow them and try to change them from the inside 
I think that she's definitely going to be sticking around with Din for a while because there is something to this creed. The fact that the the legends are, are real, the fact that the mythosaur exists. I wouldn't be surprised if she eventually tells Din and maybe they use that to work together to, to take back Mandalore. I, I don't know. It's just there are so much questions raised with so little said. And I, I love that about this part of the storyline because... There is so much possibility, and I can't wait to see where they go with it. And especially because at the beginning of the episode, the fact that she said the waters weren't that deep, and it was the bombing that that opened up and and you know basically awoke the mythosaur. There, myth Mandalore is is in for a change, and I wouldn't be surprised if Din and, and Bo are the ones leading the charge to take it back in that in that sense. Mm. I, I definitely think they're going to be in opposition of one another. I think oh. she's going to try to sabotage Din from the inside of the Children of the Watch while, you know, getting her own followers. But I think, you know, with the way Paz is and he's, you know, off to the side, we know that his lineage has has a history with with Bo-Katan. And, you know, I think it's it's fair to say that he's he's just not buying it. He's not buying it. And this is maybe where we see an alliance between Din and Paz. Uh, sort of sort of form uh, because those two have have been seen as butting heads. I think inevitably they'll all come to live together, but I think that she's still on a power trip, right? Mm-hmm. Like she she wants she wants she wants to be the leader of Mandalorian of the Mandalorians. I don't know. I think she's she's definitely keeping that Mythosaur news under her helmet, uh, and she's uh, just you know she's just just not gonna let that one slip out just yet. Last episode, I was saying that she had lost everything. And now with her house, like her, her home palace being bombed and destroyed, she literally is, that is the, the perfect yeah, she's point lost to, everything. to disconnect Almost. herself from yeah. what her family had become. Again, the fam- her family had, had left the old the ways and to learn that they're new, I think is going to be very impactful. She's not going to be wanting to turn her back on, on these people who may have been <coughs> in the right all along. Like her, her eyes have been opened. And I, I think we might see the capacity for a lot of change in her character. Well, I really think, you know, like we're saying, she's in I'd a like very her, yeah. different position than mm-hmm. when we saw her in Mando season two, right? Like, yeah, she's lost her crew. She's lost her house. Uh, she, she's biding her time here. Um, and I think she's seeing a new opportunity to potentially lead these Mandalorians back to what she and all of Mandalore used to be, like you're saying, Justin. Mm-hmm. But I think this story for her is going to be one of compromise. And I think she'll have to learn that things can't be how they were. And I think the Children of the Watch will have to adapt in order to meet her halfway. And again, this is where, I mean, I brought this up before, but I think Din and Grogu, they're obviously going to be at the center showing them uh, a redefined way. I don't think they're going to change the catchphrase. Like I, we were joking the other day, that, or the other watch club, there was <laughs> that. That is the way. Um, I don't think they're going to change the catchphrase, but I think they're going to change, I think the meaning of the catchphrase will change by the end of this season uh, or maybe even by the end of this series. Um, but I, I think this season is very much going to be one of compromise. Uh, and I think they're all going to have to work together because I think, you know, as much as people are saying, oh, the, you know, the children of the watch are going to be the, the, the threat here. No, 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 no. I don't even know if Gideon is going to be the main threat as we're starting to think of these whispers of, of a potential Thrawn showing up uh, to prepare us for the Ahsoka series, which is coming up a lot sooner than I think we think, uh, and especially getting to maybe see a little bit more uh, at Star Wars Celebration. But anyways, Darcy, you said it best. It's just so intriguing to, to, to sort of you know be left in the dark here and, and really have no idea where they're going. Darcy, you were saying you were watching a lot of the trailers uh, before this. Did you see anything new that we haven't seen in these three episodes so far? 
we've seen a lot of them now. I say there's probably about 15 to 20 percent of the trailers that we haven't uh, footage in the trailers that we haven't seen yet in the show. Okay. And a lot of it does revolve around uh, the the, the uh, Mandalorians, like the Children of the Watch. There's at least one shot that comes to mind is them dropping out of uh, what looks to be Bo's ship, the same way Mano dropped out at the beginning of oh, this sick. episode. Okay. So again, that leads me to think that she will be spending more time with them, if just because. That was clearly her cargo hold, and they were all the people we saw greeting them. I'm telling you, man. I'm telling you. Episode. Yeah, yeah. I'm. I and we were saying in the first episode that that footage from the trailer now makes sense after seeing Navarro. And I was thinking it was going to be a flashback of you know when Din was originally uh, saved, right? But it doesn't make sense. It's probably them jumping in on Navarro. Maybe they're fighting off Gorian Shard. I hope that guy makes a comeback. I'd love to see. Oh, that. Yes. Oh, he exactly. He could. He right. could also be involved in that. He could, yeah. he could. also be involved in that. Who knows? I, I'd like to say that I. I think that they could all work together, and maybe that is probably the the point of this story. I, I love that idea that Bo Katan could could be kind of redeemed, and and she can reconcile with with her 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 legacy and and move forward with this with the the children of the watch and actually become mandalorian like you know not just just say that she is but actually become it you know follow the creed i think that that's 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 a great story but i think she's here to challenge things i think she's here to kind of stir things up and the fact that she's now been brought into uh, you know the the children of the watch it's it, it makes for a very interesting conversation of of how her political views will may clash with theirs well let's just get some Game of Thrones, Mythosaur, dragon riding going on. It feels very much like that. Yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. Yeah, I'm so down. Uh, All right, I want to know what are your overall thoughts and final score for this episode, which we're going to be rating on a scale of one to five travel biscuits. Those sweet, sweet travel biscuits. Darcy, why don't you kick us off? Well, again, I I really enjoyed this episode. My my biggest gripe with it is the pacing. I I do feel like Pershing's story could have been broken up into two, with even the like the middle point being uh, when he's deciding to go get the mobile lab stuff. Something like that would be a good you know starter of the next episode. See where he ends up, type thing. It felt very long the first time watching between the two. Again, great moments with Mandalorian and Bo-Katan. So. That's where I. That's the only issues I could find with this episode because I did enjoy everything we did learn in the Pershing. It was only the fact that a second watch was required in my uh, uh, instance, so I could grasp all those straws that were being laid down for me. So that's the again. If that's the only thing I have to say about the episode, it clearly wasn't that bad of an episode. So uh, I'll be giving this <laughs> one a four out of five travel biscuits because again, pacing was the only thing I had. I was upset about. <laughs> Delicious, Justin. I totally agree with you. I think it's 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 interesting how they destructured this episode, Darcy, by by mm-hmm. placing two bits of of Mandalore on uh, as the opening and the closing with some. Uh, how did you describe it? Pershing cream in the middle. That's no. It was political intrigue cream, Justin. <laughs> yeah. I was gonna write okay, Pershing well, cream. Stuff. I would have been fine with a single regular, you know, Mandalorian Oreo. So yeah, political stuff that we got. Double stuff. <laughs> but that that said, it's. I think that this makes for a really great episode because it bridges the gaps between. Some some of the best Star Wars storytelling we have seen from the Mandalorian to Andor. It really it brings in that political thriller, that espionage vibe that it feels very reminiscent of a Blade Runner. And hey, Pershing even looked like Blade Runner at times. Uh, rocking like that he jacket, had the, the, dude. the brown pop collar and it was just mm-hmm. he looks so badass. Um, I also think that this this begins the, the process of answering questions for the sequel trilogy. Like 
somehow Palpatine returned. You know, that is a big thing that they need to fix. And I think that the Mandalorian universe and this pocket of the story is going to start doing along with the Bad Batch on the other end of 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 the canon timeline. Um, I also really like how we've seen this New Republic, as we were talking about, seen more as like, are they really better than the Empire? They seem to be adopting a lot more of the Empire and choosing what should be saved and what what is for the right of the New Republic and what what we the New Republic shouldn't use. So you know the whole amnesty program of of bringing these 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 people in to kind of recondition them and having the mind flare. I think it all just presents a really interesting dialogue around you know again just the understanding of what good and bad really looks like uh in the galaxy you know this is probably uh one of the most interesting parts of of the story that we've all been wanting to see and i liked how they explored Pershing's sort of unraveling and the conditioning that he has to go through to get himself to become you know a new member of society after the treacherous deeds he did with uh moff gideon uh you know in, in post galactic empire times the, the big question about this episode is you know the convert who is it who is it referring to is it referring to pershing and his failed conversion or is it referring to bo and her story about how she has now converted back to the old ways of mandalore and is now you know kind of spooked into believing the le- the myths and the legends. Um I really liked that that Lee Isaac Chung took on this episode and and opened the episode up with a very traditional Mandalorian style adventure and giving us a political thriller in the middle and then bringing us back out to the bigger story. I think that it actually makes a lot of sense and there's there is parallels there. I think if you see the parallels the parallels are very obvious in the story that they're telling. Um, but yeah, this is all really great stuff. And I love that we've now have more of the political intrigue and the, and, and the espionage style drama uh, embedded in The Mandalorian. So I'm going to be giving this episode a four out of five travel biscuits. Woo! George Lucas is so happy. He's loving it. He's just <laughs> like, oh, yeah, great. Get, get me back to that opera house. Uh, overall, this episode, yeah, it was great. Like, Insane aerial combat and the Mando fun at the beginning of the episode. So good. Uh, taking that hard left turn into the political intrigue of a character who I, I definitely think is going to be pretty instrumental to the downfall of the New Republic um, was cool. I think it was a really great call. I think it's a good call to do this in an episode three. Um, I, 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 you know, I love the amount of lore drops that we had in this episode. Uh, the, the, the deep cut Easter eggs done in a subtle way, I think were really, really cool. And, just really great examples of bringing in nostalgia to build out the world, getting to learn about Tong's day and Bendu day and syntax day or whatever all the days are, uh, I think was great. And I, I think, again, it's just those little things that are so much fun and remind me of some of my favorite aspects of star Wars of getting to learn that you say bright suns, uh, in, you know, in the morning on Batu. like th- those, all those little details, um, are just always so fun and geeky. Um, I think, you know, this episode had a really great show, not tell mentality in terms of its exposition. Um, I think it did a really good job at that. And I think the twist at the end, it got me. It got me and it got me so interested interested to see what happens next uh, in this part of the galaxy. Um, whether that's going to be in this series or for, you know, future series of Star Wars and, in, in, you know, I think the galaxy building that they're doing, like you said, Justin, it's it's Filoni and it's Favreau. They're coming in. They're fixing the shortcomings of the sequel trilogy. And I am all 
here for it. Uh, so yeah, this episode is great. Four out of five travel biscuits. I ate one and I smiled as I dialed the the dial up on Justin's mind flare. <laughs> All right, so that is it for this week's episode of Watch Club for The Mandalorian Season 3. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to us wherever you like to listen to podcasts, and, uh, if you haven't already. And if you want to write into the show uh, with you know with your thoughts or your predictions on the shows we cover in Watch Club, uh, well, listen, you don't have to uh, stick your head inside of a microwave uh, only to have your memories erased and, and maybe turn to mush, or maybe, maybe you will still be useful uh, to the to the uh, the first order or whatever you know that lady's doing. Uh, Darcy, can you let the children of the watch know how they can reach us by hollow message? For sure, they can reach us at wearegeekcentric at gmail dot com. That's wearegeekcentric at gmail dot com. Or if that's too much like jumping off a speeding train and not knowing where you're going to land, <laughs> you can always reach out to us on Twitter at geekcentricyt or on Instagram at wearegeekcentric. But you're gonna land on a pillow. You're gonna land on a <laughs> yeah. pillow. She like knew precisely. the exact moment. It was. She's been there before. Like she yeah, knew. She's she, done it she, before. She knew where mm-hmm. she was going. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. I mean, also, like, it was part of the operation, so maybe she just was like, "So put a pillow right there." Perfect. Um, <laughs> uh, keep in mind, we have a ton of other great episodes covering the latest in movies, TV shows, and games, including our recent spoiler-free reviews for the Apple TV original series "Hello Tomorrow," and we also have our upcoming "This Week in Geek" episode, uh, where we were so lucky to have been joined by Q107's own. Fearless Fred. Uh, we hung out with Fred to discuss the latest Star Wars movie news, his thoughts on The Punisher returning to Disney+, Plus, and we discussed his new comic series launching March 22nd called Dead Romans. Uh, he was kind enough to share some insight on the new comic, which looks... It looks absolutely incredible. Justin, you got a chance to read it. it, it dude, yes. I'm so stoked. Yeah, it's a first issue, so it's like it was like really it was a tease, so it, it got me hooked. So I'm definitely going to be going through the motions and following along to see how the story plays out. But the artwork is stunning. It's just such a great pairing of of history with today's style of of illustrative comic book infused, and in it. it's so nice, so nice, so cool, so cool. Well, that is going to be out again. Uh, the comic, the first issue, is launching March 22nd, and the episode. Uh, where we talked to Fred, is coming out on Monday. Uh, and if you enjoyed this Watch Club and can't get enough Star Wars, well, listen, we also have our Star Wars The Bad Batch Season 2 Watch Club going on right now with just three more episodes. I mean, technically one more episode and then a double episode finale. I am so stoked. Uh, and we also have interviews out now with uh, Rick Famuyiwa, as well as uh, Bo-Katan Kreese herself, Katie Sackoff, where Justin had the chance to sit down with them and discuss their voice in the larger Mandalorian story, as well as uh, there was a lovely moment uh, regarding Star Wars parenting, which was super cute. So go give those episodes a listen right here on your podcast service of choice, or you can check them out on YouTube at youtube.com slash geekcentric. Check out our TikTok at We Are Geekcentric. Justin's putting up some great TikToks. Uh, over there um so again subscribe click on all the things click the bells click the likes leave reviews darcy justin thank you so much for joining me for this watch club and as we say this this is is the way. way